You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. So today, I've called this teaching, Jesus and Jawbones. It will make sense in a moment. Just give it a moment to settle in, right? For just a second. But I would give you a warning before we start. That is that I would say that it would be extremely um, dangerous for your, you spiritually to leave without hearing all of this sermon. You say, Mark, that's just a ploy to keep us from bailing on you. No, no, that's not it at all. You have to hear all of what God is going to say this morning, I think, for to pull it together and for you to have proper context of what we're going to talk about this morning. So we have been away from the book of Judges for two weeks in our Becoming and Belonging series. Last week, Pastor Matthew did an amazing job as well, talking to us about discipleship. But today we want to get back into this. We have this week and next week in the, in the life of Samson. And then we have two weeks after that as we tie the book together. And that brings us to our Easter season series. So let me catch you up. If you don't know who Samson is, well, as we said before, the last judge of Israel in the book of Judges. And uh, if you have not been here in a while and you want to catch up, let me bring you up to speed. Samson is born to be a Nazarite. Uh, That was announced to him. This is an important part of all of Samson's life in chapter 13, that the angel of the Lord, which you know as the Theophany, comes to that of Samson's mother, later his father Manoah, but comes to that of Samson's mom and announced to him that Samson is to be a Nazarite for life. Very unusual because Nazarites are something that is usually announced about someone or chosen by someone as they are, well, after their birth. Samson is unusual that he is proclaimed by that of Jesus is going to be a Nazarite prior to his birth. Well, what's a Nazarite, Mark? You know, what does this all mean? That it means that he's set apart for God's work. There were certain aspects of being a Nazarite that were very visible uh, to people, and they knew that they were set apart for a special work of God. One was that they could not consume any grape products. That means they could not drink wine. They could not have a grape peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Any of those kinds of things were just out of the question for them as well. The second thing it was they could not touch any dead thing, nothing dead, human or animal. And third was that they could not cut their hair. And so what happens is that God calls Samson to be this Nazarite and also to begin the work of delivering Israel from their captives or captors, and that is the Philistines. They have been captive of the Philistines for 40 some years now. So that is his calling. Notice that God spoke to um, Samson and, and his parents and called him to begin to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. And that's an important part for that of biblical history. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So what Samson does, he becomes distracted. He becomes distracted and he becomes distracted by this Philistine woman in the town of Timnah. And so he had just to have, he has absolutely has to have her as his wife. So in doing so, he violates two of his commitments as a Nazarite. He doesn't cut his hair, but he does find himself with grapes and he does also find himself touching a dead thing. But we talked about this a few weeks ago that if you walk long enough and close enough 
to your spiritual commitments that at some point in your life, because of your humanity and your weakness, then you are going to step over the line. You're going to fall away from your spiritual commitments to God. And that's exactly what we see happening in Samson's life as well. Let me stop and make a point. I think it's important to say this, that this is not an issue on the part of the Philistine woman either. So we're not singling out her because of her gender or anything like that. This is purely a Samson issue. This is upon him as well. And so what he does is that he decides that he wants her to be his wife. And so he has a bachelor party. He brings all of his Philistine friends in. Remember, the Philistines are are their captors of Israel. So they are their enemy. But he has a party, a bachelor party with all of his buddies, which are Philistine men. And in that, he gives them a riddle. And they solve the riddle. He loses the bet. He's angry. When the wedding comes, he walks away from the wedding. He does. The bride is given to the best man of the wedding. And he goes out and kills 30 men to pay a debt because he lost this bet for the riddle. And and in knowing all of those things about Samson, he's still the final great judge of Israel. He still is. Yes. In fact, he's their last chance for freedom for another 110 years because Israel is not set free completely from the captivity of the Philistines until King David. And so there's another 110 years on top of the 40 years that they remain captive to the Philistines. So I, I, I saw all of this and it brought me back to this statement that is made three times throughout the narrative of That was Samson. And it says in Samson or Judges 14 and verse 19. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. I I, I said that for a while. And I thought about that. That the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And all the things that he has done. As a Nazarite. He finds himself in a vineyard in Timnah. He kills a lion. Eats honey from the lion's dead carcass. He refuses godly counsel from his dead who says, can't you find a a woman, a girl among all of the people of Israel, or at least one of our relatives, actually, the scripture says as well. And we find him attempting to marry the enemy when his call is to divorce Israel from the captivity of the Philistines. And in all of this, and all that we know about him, in all of this, the Lord is still at work in Samson's life. That's hard to explain, isn't it? I mean, if you sit in this and look at the things that he does, it's difficult to understand how and why God is still at work in Samson's life. I don't think we can fully explain it because we're not God, but I do believe that there are some things here that are intended to be revealed about God's character and nature for you and I to have an understanding of and the heart and the will of God that we can't divorce ourselves from So it warrants an investigation. It warrants you and I seeking some truth in all of this this morning. And that's the purpose of the narrative, to challenge us to seek truth. So Samson is this overwhelming bundle of contradictions. He's consistently inconsistent. In fact, a lot of writers and theologians borrow a saying or a quote from Winston Churchill to describe Samson. And they say this, that he is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. 
And that, and that event, or originally that was Winston Churchill who said that about the former Soviet Union. He's a conundrum. Just when you think you have him figured out, then he does something crazy. He is called by God. He is a Nazarite, but he tries to marry a person from the, a woman from the enemy. He's making bets, losing his mind when he loses a bet. He kills 30 guys for their suits to pay off all of the guys at his Philistine bachelor party. This is the last judge of Israel. Wow. So I begin to make a list of contradictions, I think, is what I might call them, of the life of Samson. And, and I came up with four of them. I actually came up with a lot more, but I figured that four of them would do us justice this morning. The first is this. Samson is a person of faith with an uncontrollable attraction for the opposite sex. You say, Mark, it's okay to have an attraction to the opposite sex. Sure, it is, but the word uncontrollable is the key word there. Samson is a person of prayer. He prays, but he is prone to fits of rage. He is a a leader and a judge of Israel who lusts after Philistine babes. He's the first guy that really coins sleeping with the enemy. This is the guy. This is him. Samson is a person set apart by God, but he lacks any common sense in his life. He does things that just if you thought about it for a moment, you wouldn't do those kinds of things. You say, Mark, it's obvious what's going on in Samson's life. He's just a hot mess. Things are crazy. But many times in scripture, the obvious is not the obvious. It's not the things that we're meant to see. Because when I go back to this text where it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, three times it's mentioned, and there's many other times that God does miraculous events through Samson's life. Even when Samson is all of the above that we just went through, God still works through his life. How? Well, maybe not how, because I know God is capable of doing. Maybe the question is why, right? Why does God do that? So there's a couple of thoughts this morning, and I think it's going to help us to frame God in the right way for us in understanding his character and nature. The first thought is this, that God's presence in the middle of imperfection, God's presence in the middle of imperfection. So you have greeted each other this morning. You know this is coming. You got to love me, you know. Uh, well, you don't got to love me. It's, it's, you love me. I've realized that. So could you turn to someone next to you and say that, say this to them, that you are massively imperfect. Could you say that to the person sitting next to you? Isn't that great? <clears throat> How many of you emphasize the word massively? Anybody, right? Yeah, you are massively imperfect. It's so good for your relationship. Some of you that are perhaps married, you're a significant other. You're going to have a great conversation when you go home this afternoon, aren't you? Yeah, or in the car on the way home. Like, what did you mean by that? You know, you didn't have to say it just because he asked you. No, it, it levels the ground. I think that we, we know that about ourselves. We realize that. But just to say it or it be said to us as truth brings us to this place of Samson's life. That he is a perfect picture of presence and not perfection is exactly what he is. And it, listen, this is not a suggestion from the writer to 
aspire to these levels of sin that Samson has aspired to. It's not that at all. It's not for you to fuel your life with anger and rage and lust, and then God rushes upon you. That's not what he's getting to. Uh, that's not what he's getting across to you and I this morning. This is a powerful picture of grace and mercy and God's love for us and his providence and his sovereignty and his will as well. It's Samson's imperfection does not limit God's perfect work through his life. And I realize that that truth, that reality is dangerous for you and I because we have the propensity to misuse things like that within our lives. It does. It's a powerful truth, but a dangerous reality because in the reality of mercy, we like to dismiss the truth of judgment in our lives. We do. We like to dismiss the truth of sowing and reaping within our lives. Yes, God is working his perfect and sovereign work through this fallible vessel by the name of Samson. For sure, he is doing that. But Samson's lifestyle comes at a cost. Comes at a cost. It's not free. The things that he is doing are not free. They come at a cost. I remember when my boys were younger, specifically my oldest, Chad, and, and his brother, Brad, that when we would go shopping or they would want something, and I would tell them, oh, that thing is just too expensive for us to buy, they would look at me and say when they were little guys, Dad, just write a check, is what they would say, right? Yeah. You ever thought about that? Yeah, just write a check. Now, back in the day, right, back in their day, my oldest son just turned 40, so there you go, back in the day. Then you had three days for that check to clear the bank. You know, that's a, that's a foreign thought for now, isn't it? Because everything is instantaneous. So you had three days to pray for God to perform a miracle, right? Yes. I hope none of you ever did that. Well, moving on, right? Correct. That's not faith. That's foolishness. So my boys lack the understanding of the concept of a check. Is what I'm saying. That I might receive the things that I want right now and enjoy them, but somebody has to cover the check, right? Now, I'm not talking about your salvation because there's no way that you could cover the check that your sinful nature wrote. Only God could do that through his son, Jesus. But this is about lifestyle. That even as a Christian, even when God is working through you like Samson, there is a cost to how you live. That he is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. He's a spiritual zigzag all over the place. But God uses him. God uses him. I think first, before we really get into maybe the reason or the character and the nature of God behind why God uses him, I think it's important for us to understand what God's perfect work through Samson really is. What is God doing through him? Well, he's killing a bunch of guys, you know, and he's doing all this kind of stuff. But, but is that really the purpose of Samson? So it's Judges chapter 15, verse 1. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife, which she's not his wife. Remember, he got angry and walked out on the wedding. 
and she was given to the best man, his best man. Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Can I make a point for a moment? Never bring your wife a goat as a makeup gift for walking out angry. Okay, I'm just going to tell you not. I haven't tried it, but I don't think it works well. A a Hallmark card of flowers, gifts, but not a goat. Okay, I don't think it works well. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. Now, you know, biblically, we kind of can grasp what that means. He's wanting to make up, right? I mean, he's wanting to really make up is what he's wanting to do. That's exactly what it says. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, these are interesting thoughts and words. I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion, the best man at the wedding. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? That does a lot for the self-esteem of the first one, right? That he was going to marry. Can you imagine the conversation, right? Please take her instead. I love Old Testament stories. They're great. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. In other words, killing the 50 guys for, or killing the 30 guys for suits, little over the top. I get it, but you guys have this one coming, right? You have this one coming. So here it goes. So Samson went, he caught 30, 300 foxes, took torches, and he turned their tail to tail, put a torch between each pair of tail. Only the, only the Old Testament could have stories like this, right? And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, well, he was going to be the son-in-law of the Timnite because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear that I will be avenged, I will av- that I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit, he says. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. Hebrew translation for that is that he opened up a can of, well, you know what the rest of that is, right? It's what he did, yes. And he went down and he stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. So let me talk about this for a few moments with you. A person of normal capability does not have the ability to catch 300 foxes, tie them tail to tail, place a torch between their tails, That's 150 torches. You know, I can do math, right? That's 150 torches. It is. How does he do all of this? And then he turns them loose in the Philistine grain fields and the olive orchard. Again, this is God working through him. This is miraculous, supernatural stuff that God does through Samson. Even in the middle of him trying to patch up things with that of his Philistine almost wife. God continues to move on him. But what has God called him to do? To just be a thorn in his side to the Philistines? There is a greater purpose for Samson's life. It's to cause division between Israel and the Philistines. It's what it is. See, Samson was never to really deliver Israel from the Philistines. But his place was to wake them up in the middle of their captivity 
because they had married themselves to the Philistines. They have adopted their gods into their worship system. They had begun to live like Philistines so that he sent Samson to cause a division between Israel and the Philistines. Isn't God smart? Isn't that amazing? He is absolutely brilliant. Yes, he is. He is sovereign in all of his works. Why does he do this? Because they had become comfortable with living in the middle of those that held them captive. They needed a divorce from the Philistines is what they need. And they didn't even realize it. They didn't even realize it. It's the perfect work of God. You see how perfect this is. Perfect word of God being performed through this massively imperfect judge of Israel. And the amazing thing about all of this, at this point, what we understand is Israel has yet to even understand that Samson is called by God to be a judge of them like Gideon was or like any of the other judges that we have studied through. They don't even know that. Wow. So, I'm an early riser, and the other Thursday morning, I got up around 5 o'clock or so, and, and um, I have this little routine, you know, and, and I, I go put on the coffee in the, in the kitchen because my, my brain works extremely well early in the morning, and I don't know if anybody else has that issue, but when it gets later in the afternoon, it's like, eh, the brain says to me, I don't want to work as fast as I normally work, right? So I put on the coffee first, because that kicks everything going, gets everything, gets, kickstarts everything. And then I normally go to our front door, and there are two windows on the sides of the door. And, and I just sit there, and I wait for the coffee to beep so that I know that the day can start. And I just kind of look outside, and I think, and I pray. And so I went to the front front door. I was standing at the window at five o'clock on Thursday morning, and I saw something right in front of our doorsteps of, of our house there. And I turned on the porch light and there sitting on the sidewalk, looking at me in the front door was a fox. Isn't that interesting? You say, oh, you know, things can be rabid. Do you realize that? I mean, come on, people. Oh, they're cute. Yes. But I don't know if I want to pet one of those beasts or not. Right. And, and the first thing I looked for was to make sure that his tail was not on fire, right? Because I thought that that would really have been a bad day for me if it had meant something. You say, Mark, what do you think that meant? I have no idea. I, I don't have a clue. I just thought it was a great story to tell. But anyway, yeah, what I, what I look at Samson and I realize how God uses such flawed people like him to accomplish his perfect will. And, and so I asked myself a question in my journal this week. Shouldn't God, shouldn't God, well, most often use people who are always good or godly. I mean, isn't that, what, did you think it would work out better for God if he did that? They had the right beliefs and they never struggled with doubt and their behavior is most of the time godly as well. I mean, isn't that the way we think of ourselves? Think about how you think of yourselves this time with God, that how often you have disqualified yourself because you just don't have it all together. We've already established in this room by telling each other that we are massively imperfect, that perhaps no one in this room has everything together. You might act like it. You might look like it as well. And we're really good at looking like it, especially when we come to church. But yet 
that none of us really have everything together. How many times have you disqualified yourself from God working in your life or working through your life or God doing something through you because you said that I don't have everything together? When you look at Samson, what we realize overwhelmingly is that God works in and through our lives when we are dealing with the messes of our lives. He does. It's not when we just have everything together because that's dangerous. The problem with that is that if, if God is only using people who have everything together, then now we have limited God to our own humanity is what we have done. And so it's, God is only capable of doing things when we are good people. But when we are bad people, then God is not going to do anything. And God is not perhaps even capable of doing anything. And we shut God down somehow, or at least we think that way. So here's what we, I think this is the way we operate sometimes. That God does not work out of his grace, but God works out of our goodness. So if I'm good, then God is going to do good things through my life. But when I'm bad, then God doesn't work in me or through me. I hope that the story of Samson, if anything, dispels that for you and I this morning. It eliminates that kind of thinking for us today. Understand that it it shows us how God works sovereignly through our lives, even when we don't have everything together. Can I share with you a text, I think, that expresses this in the most powerful way? It's in the book of Romans, chapter 5, in verse 6. Here's what it says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one might dare even to die. That is human logic. That's the way we function, our humanity. But he goes on to say, but God, I love the but gods because that means that there is another way. There's a better way here in what it says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. Here's what I want you to see this morning, that this is a complete work of God. The redemptive process of our lives is a complete work of God. Understand that. But there's also a progressive aspect to this as well, that he loved us in our brokenness to redeem us. He is loving us progressively in our combined brokenness or our continued brokenness as well. God continues to love you and I on the days that we get it right. And he loves us equally on the days when we get it wrong. And he still works in us and he still works through us. When you read this text, did Jesus wait until you got it right? Or did he make it right? No, he made it right even when you were completely wrong. So have you placed God in the box of your humanity? I realize this is a radical grace that we're talking about. It even seems to be reckless in some ways as, as well. But anything outside of this biblical grace that we're talking about this morning results in you Attempting to save yourself. So I thought about Samson. And then I went back to Gideon. And then there's Jephthah. 
And then there's Deborah and Barak. And then there's Ehud. And then there's Othanel. And I thought about all of these judges that we've studied together. And this common thread is that God works in and through their lives even when they are broken. I think some of you struggle with this. It's so counterintuitive to our human logic, isn't it? It, it? it really is that we struggle with this thought about God being able to do that or wanting to do that. And when I read this from the book of Romans, which I've read so many times, not even our own sin will stop God from saving us. Do you know what that is? It's the gospel. It's the very thing that Jesus preached in the New Testament that infuriated the Pharisees so much. It's the gospel. That he works in our lives even when we don't have everything together. David Jackman, who is a British theologian, writer, and a great teacher, he says, and I quote, God uses our failures as the foundation for his successes. Wow. He uses our failures as the foundation for our successes. Now some of you are already thinking, man, I've given God a lot of stuff to work with, right? Yes, I've I've given him a really good foundation. Haven't we all? Aren't we all in that same boat together? Look at verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah, not Philistines, these are his brothers. These are fellow Israelites. These are the folks that you go to church with, went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? I mean, that is an absolute... uh, statement a flawed statement of the Israelites, perhaps the biggest they could ever make. What then is this that you have done to us? In other words, you've upset the balance between us and our sin. And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into the hand, hand, into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and bound him up from the, and, and brought him up from the rock. So here's the second thought. When God is kept in the paradigm of our humanity, we become blind to his greatest ways. Let me talk about this. this is a very short one. Then we come to the last one. And then we pray and we take communion together this morning. How, think about this. How could Israel, how could Israel deliver their own deliverer to the enemy? How, how is this possible, right? I, I, I thought about this a lot. How, how, how do you do that? That's like, that's like giving away your golden ticket, right? I mean, how is this possible? And so I thought about it a lot. It's because they saw Samuel as a person because of his actions 
who would be totally disqualified for God to use. In fact, if we read the text, we understand that they are yet to really even understand that he's a judge of Israel. So I ask myself this question, then what ways of God does the enemy bind or blind us to first? And what ways of God does the enemy blind us to first? And what I realize is that what the enemy blinds us to first is the gospel. That God can't or God will not work through the brokenness of people in this world and our brokenness to be very specific. That if Satan can blind us in that moment, in that place, in that understanding of the gospel, and that is how we begin to function in our spiritual life, then he gains great control over most of our life and he begins to paralyze you and I spiritually if he causes us and creates this this lie around us and we buy into this, that there's no way that God can use us in the middle of our brokenness and when we don't have everything together and it paralyzes us. Verse 11, the 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? And that's a huge problem because what they're saying is this, that our sin, and I think this is so important, that our sin and our brokenness is actually greater than God. Because see, the Philistines have always been this type and shadow throughout all of Scripture in the Old Testament specifically, of that is lingering sin, this, this sin that you cannot shake on your own kind of sin, is sin that continues to come back because that's what the Philistines did. They continually come back and they plague Israel for 150 years. So they were a type and shadow of that kind of sin. And what they're saying is this, that our sin is greater than our God. Because when we say things like, God can't use me because I'm so broken. God can't use me because of all of the issues that I deal with. God can't use me because of the things that I've experienced in life and the things that I've done. I'm not proud of them, but God can't use me because of those things. Even when I repent of them and I've given them to God and I've confessed them to God, but I've disqualified myself over and over with God. What you're saying to God is this, that your sin is greater than God. That's huge. It's paralyzing to believe that. It shuts you down spiritually. Verse 14, and this is where we bring it all together. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Again, there is that statement. And the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And he put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, by the word said, write the word saying. Because that's exactly what he does. He sings this. This is a song with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. It's a song that he writes. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand because he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to touch anything that's dead. And that place was called Ramoth Lehi.
the translation of Ramoth uh, Lehi is that of Jawbone Hill. I love it. Isn't that great? Yeah. It's, it's Jawbone Hill, as he calls it. So here's the last thought. Jesus and Jawbones. You see, Mark, that's odd. I don't understand that. Let, let me, for, for a moment, before we come to the Lord's table together, just explain this to you for a moment. Verse 16. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. It's, it's like I said, it's a song that he wrote. The, the, actually, the more exact Hebrew translation of this is that of, with the jawbone, or with the jaw of an ass, mass upon mass, with the jaw of an ass, I have slain a thousand men. We'll be singing this next week in worship, by the way, you know? It's going to be great. So we're going to put it on the screen now. I'm just kidding. Uh, a more modern translation is with a jawbone of an ass, I piled them in a mass. I even like that one better, don't you? Say, Mark, make your point. You've said it enough. I know. But I think it's important to understand it. Because when you look at Samson, and then you look at us, how many of us would have the ability to take a jawbone of a donkey, kill a thousand warriors, and sing a song that we just composed all at the same time? It's God. So it is possible, and hear this well this morning, it is possible for Jesus to work through a jawbone in your hand, but in your heart, listen, but in your heart, look at Samson's life, you lack self-control, and you lack patience, and you lack gentleness, and you lack peace. Can God work through us? I wrote this in my journal. Can God work through us and yet there be a work that needs to be done within us? And the answer is yes. So it brought me to this question, then what are you using to check your spiritual temper? What are you using? Most of you will... Never stand on a hill with a thousand dead Philistines around you and you're holding a jawbone of a donkey in your hand. I know you think that's the coolest sight, right? You can just see yourself doing that, but most of you will never experience that. But what if you used in your life to check your spiritual temperature? Can I show you a text from 1 Corinthians 13 and Allison, you can come and play because if you don't come and play, I'm still going to talk, okay? So you got to play. But let me share this with you from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, Paul says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here's what this says to me, that you can stand on this stage on a Sunday morning, that you can have the name pastor or the title prior to your given name, and still need work to be done in your heart. 
We're all equally on the dirt road of sanctification. We are. Be careful this morning. Be careful to not confuse what you're doing for God and what God wants to do within your own heart. Here's the thought. Here's a question. Are you fine spiritually just because you have a jawbone and Jesus is working through you? Does that make you okay spiritually? Is that what you're using to judge your life by and your heart by is to say that, look what God is doing. Look what I've done. I've slain a thousand Philistines. Look at that. I wrote a song and sang it right at the same time. So look at all I've done. So I'm okay spiritually. Because if that's what you're using as a justifier for your spiritual life, then go back and look at the life of Samson. God was working amazing things through his life. But yet his heart was broken. He needed great work to be done in in his own heart. And so you justify that you're fine spiritually because you're here this morning and your neighbors aren't. You've justified that you're fine spiritually because you're not doing the things that you used to do or doing the things that other people do. And some of you that come from a fundamentalist background really struggle in that area because that's how you define yourself. Well, Mark, I'm not doing the sins I used to do. And and I value that. And I'm thankful for that. And I rejoice with you. But Jesus working through a jawbone is not a justifier that you are spiritually fine. Grasp that this morning. Because if that were not, if that were not truth, then you're going to have to go back and erase all of this narrative about Samson. Because God's Spirit rushes upon him. He does supernatural things. God has gifted him with supernatural gifts, but yet his heart is broken. How many times do you come into this room, in this setting, week after week, and You've justified yourself spiritually. Because of the outward things that are happening in your life. What you're doing or what you're not doing. But you've not taken the time or you ignore the voices of God in your life. That there are even greater things that God wants to do within your life. And what you are doing on the outside is not a justifier of what's going on inside your heart. Oh, God, speak to us. That that church can't church can't be a, a you know it, this can't be a one and done thing in our life. This can't just be something that we come to on a Sunday morning. And I'm just using that as an example. There are much deeper, deeper analogies that we could draw here. But yet, you can't do that and say, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Not until you look into your own heart. Not until you surrender those things within your heart. Not until you surrender the hatred of your heart or the lust of your heart. Or, or even things that you are struggling with, like, like that of 
the loneliness of your life or that you're never satisfied with what is given you. So you live in this place of unrest. Isn't that Samson's life? He's never satisfied with anything. He's always restless. So I put in your notes three questions to take your spiritual temperature with. And they all come from the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. And then it goes over into chapter 2 as well. Read that later. Read those three questions about your life in a moment of quietness today. Ask yourself the difficult questions. But here's what I want to say to you before we pray. Samson failed at all of them. He failed at having a deeper love for others or a hatred for his own sin or a hunger for a spiritual truth. He failed at all of them. And yet the Spirit of God rushed upon him. But that was never a justifier for him to think that he was spiritually okay. Because we look at his heart and the things that come from his heart and we know that he was not. Well, Mark, I'm saved. I'm not questioning that. What I'm challenging you to do is to look at your heart and what are the things that God wants to do in you this morning. You see with Samson, and I say this, because this this just came to me last night. That this journey for Samson is being a Nazarite and then God using him to separate Israel from the Philistines started in chapter 13, the beginning of his story. And I think it's not by accident or chance that it starts this way because it starts with this theophany, this appearance of the angel of the Lord who we know to be Jesus. It starts with Jesus coming to his mom and declaring Samson's call. And I wondered through Samson's life, how many times did his parents recount that calling to try to get him back on track to have that conversation with him? as to what the angel of the Lord Jesus had said to his mom and then later his dad as well. And Samson kept rejecting the words of Jesus, kept rejecting the words of Jesus. And next week we find out how that all ends. And so he relies on foxes tied together with torches or a jawbone in his hand. And really, all he needed was to go back to Jesus.
because that changes everything, doesn't it? Everything. How did you get to the place where you are? I have to look at my watch. I know that's terrible. But our confidence monitor is out up there, so I have no idea what time it is. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. It's a gift from the Lord to me. (laughs) I do know what time it is. But how did you get to where you are today? How did you get to the place where you're justifying your spiritual life by just the things you're doing or not doing? How did you get there? You got there. Like Samson did. Because year after year, month after month, you move away from Jesus. You move away from his words. You move away from the understanding of his character and nature. You disqualify yourself from God using you because you're broken, because you've moved away from the gospel which centers around Jesus. You see that? So it's all about him. It's where it started for Samson. It's where it needs to begin for you today. Maybe a reset for say, God, I lay down my justifiers. Lord, I lay down my my jawbone. And so, God, just do some work in my heart. Because there's things that need to be done. So can I pray for you for a moment this morning? Would you take a moment in a posture of prayer, those of you that are in the room with us, those of you that are joining us online, take a posture of prayer today, however that looks for you and however you're comfortable. And just allow me to pray with you and pray for you today. So, Father, you've challenged us this morning. Lord, it's a difficult challenge. A call to move beyond how we have justified that we are spiritually okay. And God, we're not doubting that you've not redeemed us. We're not going there. But we've justified that we are spiritually healthy. Yet our hearts are a mess. So, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts and our lives and that you would speak to us this morning. That we would lay our justifiers down. We would go back to Jesus, where this all started, going back to the gospel to realize that it's not by our works least we should boast. That we go back to Jesus. So, Father, we lay our justifiers down. We ask that you speak to our hearts. God, we open our hearts to you this morning. Do a powerful work within us. Father, we give you thanks in your name. 
Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.